Tonight, we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. And this is a familiar story. Um, and, and it's an interesting story. Sometimes the familiar stories are the ones that we really need to look at again, look at afresh. Now, there's a guy, Richard Bauckham, who's one of the great New Testament scholars of our age. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a very helpful book. If you've been taught things about Q and all these other ways that maybe the New Testament and the Gospels came together, it's, there's a lot of reasons to doubt a lot of that stuff. And he lays it out in this book. One of the things he shows is that in the ancient world, narratives did not include irrelevant details. It's one of the reasons that when you come to a story like this one, you can have a high degree of assurance that this actually happened. Because nobody making up a story would include the detail about the little boats, the other boats. In the Greek it says the, and there were other little boats with him. Uh, it's not relevant to the story in any sort of way. It's just the kind of thing that an eyewitness would remember. But even though this extraordinary story actually happened, like I say, this story has the marks of authenticity. Um, the question for us tonight and what we've been looking at this semester is, why is this story included in Mark's gospel? If you remember, Mark's gospel is Peter's account, the apostle Peter. And it's written for Christians in Rome who are beginning to suffer an intense persecution under Caesar Nero. So the question is not, did this happen? Yes, it happened. Of course it happened. But... Why is it included? Because there's a lot of stories that happened. As a matter of fact, the end of John's gospel, John says that we have written these things that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. And he says there were many other things that Jesus did. And not all the books in the world could fill, could be filled with all the stories and the things. So history the Gospels as history, the Gospels are selective. Why this story? How did it help the original hearers? And how does it help us face our fears and our storms? Because this is a story about fear. And the key is to see that this is more than just a miracle story. It's a revelation of who Jesus is and what he's like. Let's read this passage Follow along. It's Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, talking about his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats, in the Greek it says little boats, were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your holy, inerrant, infallible word. And we pray that 
you would speak to us boldly tonight. Calm our fears. May we hear peace be still and may it come to us with power because we've seen you and beheld your glory. Pray that tonight you'd send your spirit to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. So the storm is only part of the problem, right? The, the, the storm is, is a serious storm. These are, you know, at least four that we know of, of these 12 disciples are fishermen. They're used to these kinds of storms, but this one really had them, okay? But the real issue is their fear, and even more than that, their charge against Jesus. Did you catch it? Don't you care? So it's one thing to go through hard times. It's one thing to be afraid. What really makes it unbearable is the thought that God doesn't care. Even when we think about the problem of suffering and evil, and I hear different people talk about ways to talk about it so often, people talk about it as a philosophical abstraction, and it never is. It always is really ultimately about, does God care? And how do we know? How can we know, right? They've jumped to conclusions instead of asking who Jesus is and what might he be doing. What they need, of course, and what we need is a bigger view of who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to gaze upon Jesus as he's revealed through this passage, because I think that's really why Mark included this story, that we could just gaze upon Jesus. What's the first thing? The first thing we see is serving Jesus, even being with Jesus, does not exempt you or protect you from storms. Now, if you actually have a whole Bible in front of you, you could see right before this, Mark goes through the 12 disciples. They're all gathered now. He's got his guys. There's, there's no indication that they're, that they're not following him faithfully. They get in the boat, and then they're in a situation where they might actually die. <laughs> and you have to wonder, is that what they thought they were signing up for? Is that what you signed up for? I wonder. If you're one who would say, I'm following Jesus, what do you think you signed up for? I do think sometimes people get manipulated into making a profession of faith or following Jesus, like with the idea that life will get better. Here's the thing, guys. Some things might actually get more difficult when you follow Jesus. This was really brought home to me years ago. So I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music years, years and years ago. And me and a few buddies, we started the Christian Fellowship at Berkeley back in the um, I guess it was around 86, 87. All right, flash, you know, fa fast forward. I'm in seminary in around 1993 up in St. Louis, and I'm still single. And I didn't have very much money as a seminary student, but I had more money than when I was a college student. So I was like, here's what I'm going to do for spring break. I'm going to go back to Boston, and I'm going to go, like, go to a Celtics game, because in the 80s you couldn't get a ticket. They were awesome. It was Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and all those guys, and none of you guys know about basketball, right? Um, and, and it was the Red Sox. You know, they were in the World Series. I mean, you couldn't do any of that stuff if you were a poor college student in the 80s. So I was like, now I can go. And I went and I saw Celtics game and I saw, you know, uh, the, the Red Sox and I went to Symphony Hall, all these kinds of cool things. And I also 
kind of got in touch with the people still running the Christian Fellowship at Berkeley because I was like, I'm going to come talk to them. I've learned all these things now. I wish I had known when I was in music school about how you don't have to just do Christian music. You can do all kinds of music to the glory of God, which was kind of a radical idea uh, among a lot of Christians back in the 80s and 90s. I'm just telling you, okay? That's back when we had, you know, an official, like, how many Jesuses per minute you need to have in your song for a song to be considered a Christian song and eligible for a Dove Award. It was weird days, okay? So I go back up there and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm here I am. I'm going to come down from the mountain and give them this wonderful talk. And this girl from, uh, you know, I, Berkeley, well, great thing about Berkeley, 50% international students. So there, there's people from just everywhere. So I'm giving this talk and this girl comes up to me afterwards and she says, I've, I'm really kind of struggling. I was like, oh, let me help you, you know, because like, I'm, I'm the, the wise guy in seminary now. Um, and she goes, you know, um, I'm really struggling with whether or not to do Christian music. And I was like, and before I could sort of interrupt her and give her my little spiel, she said, because I'm from uh, Indonesia, and in my country, if someone would be converted from my testimony, I can be put to death. And I was like, oh, that's a different, that's a different issue. That's not, do you want to go into the CCM world or the mainstream world? What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's what it meant for her, Right? To this day, I don't know what she decided. I don't. But what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for these disciples to follow Jesus? Having God in your life does not guarantee a life of ease and comfort. And as I said, it might, in fact, bring even more suffering. It might, it might get in the way of things that you would want to look to for quick relief. Because following Jesus may mean saying no to things. Saying yes to Jesus may mean saying no to things, right? J.C. Ryle, who's a, a, an author I've always loved. When I was your age, I found his book in a used bookstore called Holiness, and it was a really transformational book for me. In his little commentary on the gospel, Mark, he says this, let us mark well this lesson. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments just like other men. He means mankind, not just the men. He basically means just because you're a Christian, you're not immune from all of the common suffering. He has never promised that we shall have no affliction. And listen to this. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us so many precious lessons. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, and purifies our affections. We would say purifies our loves. Serving Jesus does not exempt you from the storms of life because he loves you too much to let you just run off, have like a little fleeting check-in every now and then relationship with God. He wants your heart. And he loves you too much to let you run around and be distracted by all kinds of other things. The second thing we see here that's so important about Jesus that encourages us is he was a real man. He was a true man. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was a man who worked hard and got tired and falls asleep in a boat and sleeps through a storm like this. And you know why that's so important? Because he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He was not a superman, and he doesn't ask us to be. 
to have a relationship with him. Like that, that psalm that we did is the call to worship, Psalm 103, verse 14. The Lord knows our frame. Of course he does. He made us. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, we sang a song just a minute ago about, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I always like to remind people what that means. Do you know what that means? A frame is kind of like an emotional state. And so what it's saying is, I don't even trust when I feel God loves me, I need to trust God, not my feelings, even when my feelings are good. And certainly, I don't need to trust them when I feel like absent. Here's the thing, our feelings are all over the map. And, and, and Jesus knows this. Jesus was sad. Je Jesus <laughs> dealt with everything just like we do, right? J.C. Rowell puts it this way, the Savior in whom we are bid to come, bid to trust, is really a man as he is God. He can well understand what we mean when we cry to him for help in this world of need. He is just the very Savior that men and women, me and you, with weary frames and aching heads in a weary world require for comfort morning and night. And Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was a real man. He's also, though, powerful. He has almighty power. Look at this. He does not like bow up and like, okay, wind, we're going we're gonna to have it out now. He just wakes up you know, probably rubs his eyes, said, peace, be still. You know, it, it, it's kind of like when I tell my dog to shut up, just shut up. You know, it's, it's not like he's not having to do any battle. He's not having to, to sort of like, like I say, kind of bow up. He just utters a mere word. He doesn't expend any effort. And the storm obeys. The wind ceases. But not only that, Calm comes. That means the waves stop too. See, it's one thing to stop the wind, but the waves would keep going for a while. This is certainly a supernatural act. You can't get away from it. There's no natural explanation for this. He stops the wind and the waves stop instantly and it's dead calm, like a sea of glass. No wonder the disciples are freaked out. Notice this. Before he calms the, sore, the storm, they're afraid and they think they're going to die. But after he calms the storm, they're terrified. Right? Because they've got a taste of what's going on here. Right at the end, they're like, who is this guy? I mean, they're following him, but they still, like, he still keeps blowing up the little boxes that they want to put him in. But here's the challenging thing for us, and I think one of the, the reasons that this story is included in Mark's gospel for the Christians in Rome is Jesus does have almighty power, but he uses it for his purposes. And sometimes that's really difficult for us to accept. You know, I've been doing campus ministry with students here at Belmont 27 years, and I've had many times in hearing people kind of unpack their story talk about really hard stuff that's happened that's led them to say that they don't believe in God. 
And, and yet when you dig into it, and I, I want to be sensitive here, when you dig into it, you're like, what I hear you saying is, you don't believe in God because he let this happen. I think actually you do believe in God, you're just furious with him or so disappointed with him that you don't want to have anything to do with him. Now listen, we don't want to dismiss that or make light of that because that's a, that's a real place. Maybe some of you are there even right now, but I just want to say this. Jesus has almighty power, but if he's big enough to blame for the things that we don't like, isn't it just possible that he's wise enough to have reasons we can't understand. You see, the Bible does not give the kinds of answers to the problem of suffering that don't lead to other questions. But it does give the kinds of answers, I believe, that can enable us to continue to follow him. John Frame, one of the great um, theologians, philosophers of our day, put it this way in his book, uh, talking about apologetics to the glory of God in the section where he's talking about suffering and evil. He says, my own verdict, looking at the Bible, is that we are unlikely to find complete answers to all of these questions. Answers, that is, which are not subject to further questions. But I do think we can provide answers in another sense. If what you want is encouragement to go on, believing in the midst of suffering, Scripture provides that and provides it abundantly. If you want help to go on trusting God despite unexplained evil, yes, we can help. And here's where the story goes next to help. Jesus wakes up, he calms the storm, but he doesn't shame the fearful disciples. He's so tender with them. Uh, in the Greek, you could probably translate this a little better saying, not have you no faith, but where is your faith? It's a good question. It's a good question to pose to ourselves. They accused him of not caring. They said, don't you care that we're dying? That's, I mean, if your child said that to you, well, you know, we've experienced this. You know, if you're a parent, you've experienced this, right? And, and it, I'm just telling you, when your kid says that, you're like, well, you little ingrate. Can, do you not remember like everything I've done, all the sacrifice, right? That's how you want to just kind of bow up. Jesus doesn't do that at all. They're like, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you even know? You know? And he gets up, he says, peace, be still. Oh, where's your faith? It, it's, it, it's more a sigh. It's not a shaming question. It's not a rebuke. He rebuked the waves. He doesn't rebuke his, his poor little faith. Disciples. There, there's a great place in uh, one of the other Gospels where Jesus says, in the King James, it says, Oh, ye of little faith. And literally in the Greek, it's, Oh, you little faith ones. I don't know, if, you know what you think of you know, yourself, but Jesus says, You're a little faith one. And that's okay. That's okay. You come to him as you are, right? One of the best um, prayers in the whole Bible. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Right? And this is... The character of Jesus revealed that encourages us. He's using his power, not always how we want him to use his power. But he's tender, merciful to his little faith ones. Where is your faith? How can we believe that Jesus cares 
Well, it's helpful to remember how this story ends. You know, a lot of commentators and Bible scholars have pointed out numerous parallels between this and the story of Jonah. Jesus himself actually said that the story of Jonah was pointing to him. Think about it. You have somebody in the boat asleep. You have this storm that rises that must be dealt with or everybody's going to die. And what happens in the Jonah story is he gets thrown over and the storm is dealt with because of an intervention. In this story, there's also an intervention, but it's just pointing to the real intervention that's going to come. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, um, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the one, the greater Jonah. Jesus is the one who's saying, I won't just jump into the water, I will jump into the flames. I will go to the cross because you need more than me saying peace be still to a storm. Because there's going to be another storm. And how will you know that you can trust me? How can you know that I'm using my power for your good even if it doesn't feel like it? And you know how. Because he went to the cross. How crazy would it be if Jesus went to the cross and said, I'm just going to let these people flounder around? That would make no sense. We have to use the rest of the story to do battle against our fear and our unbelief. Right? And that's what we have here. A revelation of who Jesus is. Who he is. He is the one who calms the storms the ultimate storm of death. Serving Jesus does not exempt you from the little storms here, but following Jesus, putting your hope in him, does deliver you from the ultimate storm that you don't want to face, and neither do I. He was a true man. He sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. But he also has almighty power all he has to do is utter a word. Peace, be still. Have you ever prayed, Lord Jesus, speak that word to me. Have it, have it break into my heart. And as you're there longing for that, look at Jesus. Don't just look down. Look at Jesus. Look into his face. Say, Jesus, you're the one who went to the cross. Help me to do battle against this fear and this unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean that all your fear and all your unbelief is just spiritual. I know it's more complicated than that. And if you're living in that place where you're just kind of, oh, I don't even know what, come talk to somebody. Don't suffer in silence. But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's beautiful. And he has tender pity for his poor little faith followers. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your mercy and your power. What a combination. Pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see it. In Jesus' name, amen.